0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. You can follow along on page 842 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Mark 7, verses 1 through 23. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be Let's pray and ask uh, God's help by His Holy Spirit. Lord, as we consider this passage, we pray that you would open up our hearts not only to believe your word, but Lord, to rest in it, to trust, to Follow it to live it out in our lives, which only you can do for us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. So we trust you and your good purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So, what the uh, kids, it could be a, a boy, a girl—doesn't matter. To imagine that you and one of your parents—maybe it's more likely it would be your dad—but um, or if. Uh, you're not with your parents, whoever's taking care of you, but decided that you're all going to build a tree house in your backyard. You've got the perfect tree, and you spend quite a few weeks building this <clears throat> tree house, and it's really fantastic. I mean, it'll hold 10 kids probably, uh, and it's got a neat ladder that comes up. And uh, there are three rules, though, that you created for this uh, this house. <clears throat> One is that There's also, in addition to the ladder, there's this big thick rope that has knots in it that you can use to climb up and down too just to add to the fun and, you know, uh, ability to play on it. But one of the rules is you can't have any other rope except this one because dad's afraid that they'll have some skinny rope and kid will start down it and he'll burn his hands or just fall or whatever. So it's just this one rope. Okay, and you agree, that's a good rule. I'll I, I follow that. Um, the second rule is no more than eight kids. No more than eight. Because it'll hold more, but that's, you know, six to eight, that's a safe number. You agree? Yes, I think that's a, that's a good rule. And another rule, just in thinking about the possibility of messes, um, your dad says, and I don't want any paint in this house ever, okay? It's a mess and it looks bad. Just don't think about painting. Okay, got it. I agree with that. We're not going to paint. So you go uh, with your family on a vacation. It's kind of a long vacation for a couple of weeks. And you come back and you hear some kids in the backyard. And you walk back there and one of your friends, Jamie, is in the treehouse and the other kids are around the treehouse it's kind of odd. I mean, it shouldn't even be there anyway. But um, the fact that, and then you notice first that the rope is gone. And you say, Jamie, what happened with this rope? He said, well, we we thought, you know, if he doesn't want another rope, then we could guarantee there wouldn't be another rope by taking this rope out of here. So there's no rope. So we're, we're sticking to that. I mean, we're even going further can't even have a rope you know that's that's our 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 rule well that's not the rule we wanted another way to go up and this is you took away a lot of well that's our new rule oh you made the new rule yes we did well why are you the only person up there well here's another new rule whereas you said uh, he would probably wouldn't say, whereas, uh, but so Jamie said, you said there couldn't be eight people, any more than eight people. So we thought, you know, we'll make sure there's never eight people because there's only going to be one person in that place. You're like, my dad didn't want one person to be in the treehouse. That just ruins the whole fun of being together and playing in the playhouse, the tree house. He's just trying to keep us safe. You just no. That's the new rule. We've got that rule now. We're gonna. We're really keeping the rope real. We're really keeping the numbers real. And so about that time, your dad comes out of the garage and he says, uh, "Kids, do you know anything about the paint that was in the garage?" I say, "Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's another thing we did. What did you do?" Well, you know, you said don't ever paint the treehouse. We We were in there getting some army toys, uh, the door having to be left open, and we saw that paint in there. And so we just got it completely off the property. It's gone. We threw it away. That was what I was going to paint my house with. It cost a lot of money. I know, but see, we're keeping that rule. There's not going to be any paint in the treehouse because there's no paint in your whole property. Well, you, you see how... Terrible that would be. Like, it's not their house. It's not their tree house. They can't remake these rules. But do you notice that they're trying to keep the rule even stricter or maybe in more detail than it was original? And that the original rules are really good and safe and, and allow for a lot of fun and enjoyment. And these rules really killed so much about the treehouse, right? Plus, Dad lost hundreds of bucks of paint <laughs> on top of it. Now, that's, that is very close to what the Pharisees did with the law of God. Which brings us to our first point that the first, the Pharisees are calling out the disciples. Why are the Pharisees calling out the disciples? You talk, and notice they don't say, the word of God says, notice they don't quote the word of God. What do they quote? You can look at it and see, right? Tradition, the elders. So there is this oral tradition uh, that they actually would, they made up and said, this oral tradition goes back to Moses. And so this oral tradition uh, is coming right alongside the word, and it's the word of God too, basically. And what it was is hearing the principles of God's word, then they wanted to add to those principles and tell us how, T- tell the people how to obey those principles in very great detail. But the, pr- the problem is when they began to apply those principles, some of, uh, some of their laws just stood in direct opposition to the law of God. So this went about washing the hands, for instance. The only time besides like uh, things that had to do with sacrifice and that kind of thing was that the priests washed their hands before they went into the tabernacle. Okay, so then it developed over time that if that's an act of purity, then maybe we can just make that act of purity apply to everything we do. So they always washed hands before they uh, ate and not just the priests, but they demanded that everybody wash every time they ate, which was never in the Bible, never. But this is their way of saying, hey, look, the priests washed before they went in the tabernacle. Man, we could wash everywhere. We'd really be keeping that law, really doing great with that law. And so they had this certain way you do it. And and, and it's interesting that uh, in their uh, passing down this uh, oral tradition, what they thought was, they, they described it in this way, it's kind of building a fence around the law. See, like if you're going to disobey the law, you have to run into this fence first. So this fence can keep you way away from obeying the law. You see, just like the rope. There ain't going to be another rope because it's not even the first rope up there. There's not going to be any paint because we took all the paint out. Not going to be eight people because we're going to let one person up there. You see, It's that same idea. We're going to build a fence around this law to protect it and to keep people uh, doing the right thing. But as it turns out, as Jesus points out, this tradition actually began to take the place of God's law. It became more important, really, than God's law. So they call out Jesus' disciples because they weren't washing their hands. And you can tell this doesn't bother Jesus at all he didn't care about their traditions, the traditions of the elders, which were later put on paper around 200 AD. And they've continued to this day with real strict uh, Jewish interpretation and, and lifestyle called the Mishnah, if you're interested. But um, I don't recommend your quiet time in the Mishnah. Uh, <clears throat> might be a little bit rough. <clears throat> so Jesus, though, turns it right around and he is strong right out of the uh, block. He didn't really explain how this works at first. He just says, "Yeah, you know uh, this tradition and this elder stuff you're pulling on us." He said, "It shows that you praise God with your mouth, but your heart's so far away from God." I mean, that's a challenging thing right off, and how challenging because. They think by doing these things, they're closer to God. They think by doing these things, they're more pure than the people that don't do them. The Pharisees looked at everyone else around them as being impure compared to them. They were the the cleanest, the the most like God or the closest to God. And they wouldn't even associate or, or if they accidentally came into contact with certain people, they had to bathe this in certain ways to get themselves clean. It's like like if you somebody was uh, had the suspicion of, uh, of crime around them, then you don't want to be associated with that because it could make you suspicious, it could make you guilty by association. So they don't want to be around these people that might be guilty before God. And then just by being close to them, they could get guilty. So they Stay clean, stay clean, stay clean. And the disciples obviously are not trying to stay clean. You've been to the marketplace. You've been around people. You don't know who you might have touched or been around. You've got to get clean again before God. So you can see how this bothers Jesus because he says it three times. Verse 7, you teach his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 8, verse 9. You reject the commandment of God to establish your own tradition. This really incensed Jesus. And in part of his calling out the Pharisees, he goes and talks about this commandment and there's a great deal of sarcasm in verse nine who says oh you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of god to establish your own oh and then it gets down uh, the last part in verse 13 and many such things you do it's like you do this all the time this is just the way you work it all the time you got a great way of making up these laws and ignoring the word of god and here's one of them. So. Uh, we, many of us may be familiar with deferred giving. So you commit your, uh, uh, your estate or a certain amount of your estate to, say, an institution or a charity, and it's understood that you can live off that in the meantime, but when you die, that goes to the charity or to the institution. But in the meantime, it's yours, and you can live off the interest or whatever. Well, this idea of Corbin was kind of like that, Where you're supposed to, as Jesus quotes the Old Testament, honor your father and mother. And that honor is so serious that if you curse your mother or father, and that means a sustained, horrible, hoping and wishing and acting, you know, wanting them dead, you yourself could be put to death. Okay. And he says, this is what the word says. Honor your father and mother. And Part of that honor was to be take care of your mother and father. Financially, help them in their old age when they're going to really need your help. That's the way you honor them. You love them. Oh, no, but you've got this uh, commandment that's really convenient. You have people commit their money to Corbin. And it means that in the meantime, because it's dedicated to Corbin, your parents can't touch it. And then it goes to the temple after that. And just look at this. It has the look of humility. Oh, I'm dedicating my money to God. Which means I don't have to give any of it to my parents. (laughs) You know, you just hear it, right? Sounds so holy. It's dedicated to God. Not just your parents. I mean, you know it's more holy to give to the church. And then, of course, the church loves it, right? Pharisees love money. Jesus talked about this. They love money. They want more and more money. So they'll set up systems in direct opposition to the word of God to get that money. So... That's a tradition and Jesus could probably name dozens of them. And he calls out that you don't permit verse 12 to do anything for his father or mother because he's in the holy activity of Corbin. Under the guise of holiness and honor to God, there's greed, there's hatred of your parents And who knows what might happen to them in the meantime. And you don't have to do anything about it because you're so holy. You just feel Jesus bristling over this. And that this was not the only thing. Well, I'm just like, sometimes you have, uh, I get raspberries, all berries. All berries are good, all berries. Um, But raspberries are notorious for going bad, The worst. And so you got to eat them fast. But sometimes I, op- I, I get them out and one of them has mold on it. You know, I want to get that one out because you're going to spread your mold on my other raspberries. But Jesus is saying this law It's not just one bad raspberry. He says, man, you got mold all over your raspberries, all over. That's what you do. You ruin the, the, the word of God, which is intended to uh, command compassion and mercy and care for your parents and look what you've done well there's this uh, deeper issue too that Jesus addresses then in our third point uh, where he holds forth uh, the true nature of the human heart in verses 14 and following and this helps us understand something of what he's uh, why he opposes this and why really he can say what he does in verses uh, 6 and 7, that they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, part of it, obviously, is that if you're setting your word instead of God's word, then you are abandoning God. And you may say, this is God's will. This is God's word. We're, we're, we're commanding. I mean, they're, they're setting this forth to, to Jesus as though they've disobeyed God. If you don't obey the tradition of the elders, you can't please God. You can't be pure in God's sight. You've got no hope. And so they're creating a new word basically makes them the center of things and displaces God from the center. But it's based on, at this point with the Pharisees, it's based on this misunderstanding of the human heart that you could actually keep yourself pure and that in the end, you don't really need forgiveness and you don't need God's mercy uh, because you've got all these laws by which you can be pure before God. You've got all this this set up, established rule keeping that allows you to assert yourself before God and say, I'm I'm a righteous man. I, I, I do well, you know like the Pharisee does in in Luke chapter 18. So this activity, this this rule setting uh, can be this appalling rejection of God and it can actually build a kingdom around ourselves and a kingdom like in the case with the Pharisees in which we think we're safe in our self-righteousness as they did. And we're set at liberty to look down on others and separate ourselves from others and condemn others and despise others and mock others because we're the ones that are keeping the rules and they're not poor, pathetic people. The thing we want to avoid at heart as as people, as human beings, is we're trying to avoid the blazing majesty of God's Word. This penetrating, piercing, exposing Word that declares to us how bad it is right here, as Jesus does here. And this is brutal, isn't it? The last couple of verses where Jesus sets forth and says, no, it's it's not what is outside you. you know, you're, you're not made bad by things outside you. One question we ask kids a lot when we're interviewing them for the church is I'll say, now tell me, uh, when you were really, really young, and let's just assume you were obeying your mother and daddy perfectly all the time, you never said no, you never pitched a fit, you were always kind to your brother and sister. Did your parents have to teach you, though, to say, well, you know, you're always obedient? Let me show you how to disobey me. Let me teach you what you say. When I say, make up the bed, uh, clean up your room, don't obey perfectly like you're doing now, but you say, no, I don't want to clean up my room. Now, say it, say it with me, you know. (laughs) And by then, of course, kids are just like, you (laughs) know. I said, so that just came out of your heart? Yeah, I just, yeah, I say it came out of my heart too. It comes out of all of our hearts. We don't have to teach our kids how to do this. It just comes out. As Jesus says, that is where the, the defilement is. It, it's from inside of us. It's not the nice, you know, in that sense, Jesus is not nice to us, but he is good to us and tells us the truth about ourselves you see, we can set up our rules and we can set up our religious practice so that it actually blocks us from God. It keeps us from God. It, it allows us to stay away from him and stay away from his blazing glory and goodness because uh, we want to assert ourselves before him. You can even use attendance or you can use service at the church uh, as your basis for, I don't really need God's mercy because I go to church all the time. I always have. My parents went to church. I had a lady one time when I was talking to her about Jesus. It was like she was in some kind of trance or something, but I was talking about sinfulness and you know how we need God's mercy. And she just broke in and she said, I've never said a curse word. I said, oh, okay, that's fine. Um, and, and I, you know, Started trying to talk about, and then she just come back to it. I mean, five or six times, I've never said a curse word. I've never said a curse word. That's what she was holding on to, that thing. And so for her, I don't need to hear about God's mercy. I don't need to admit that I'm a sinner. I don't say curse words. He owes, you know, he owes me, in a sense, or, or maybe she's so scared, she just has to keep it at bay. Whatever it is, if it's fear, if it's pride, we've got to keep at bay this blazing word of God that just jars us and, and, and blows us to pieces, in a sense, saying, you have nothing in yourself. You are helpless. You are decimated before God. You have no hope except mercy. And Paul drives this home in his great treatise on the gospel in Romans at the very end of his whole section of talking about sin. He says, he's shut every Jew and every Gentile into sin. He says, we all stand before God. Here's the picture of us you know, making some claim to... I, I'm righteous or whatever. And he says, he shut every one of our mouths in his presence. We just like, uh, you know, I got nothing. And later it's beautiful in chapter 11. He says he has, and he used the word for a net that captures and encloses. He said, we've all been enclosed so that we all can have his mercy. See, he encloses us in the net of our own sin so that we can't escape that. It's not just that I do some sinful things. It's not just I've been in a bad crowd. It's not the, the evil just pours out from me. It just comes from here. It's me. It's not you. It's not. It's me. And every one of us is saying that it's me. That's why I feel like I'm the worst person that ever lived. I really do. Because I know a little of how bad I am. I don't know how, I don't know your thoughts, but I know my thoughts and I know my motives. So we are trying By nature, we we want to cover over this blazing word of God. And in so doing, we're covering over the magnificent mercy of God in Christ. We're, We're covering over that God loved us while we were sinners. While this evil is pouring out of our hearts. At the time, it's pouring out of everybody's heart. In the whole world, Jesus dies for us. What are you going to do with that? And we, this is the basis for our fellowship. That when we've all come to this point by God's grace to see who we are, and all are embracing by His grace the mercy of God. That's our fellowship. That's the core of our fellowship. Helpless dependence upon this God. Because apart from Him, we have nothing and we are nothing. And Jesus isn't making something up like new on the spot. This is Old Testament, you know, Jeremiah 17. Many of you know the heart is desperately wicked, it is sick. You can't even know it. It's so desperate. There's so much labyrinth of evil in there. You, you can't even understand your heart. You don't even know why you do the things you do that just spill out of you. That's how helpless we are. We're so helpless that though it says, God, we're commanded in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Deuteronomy 36 says, God has to circumcise your heart. He has to do heart surgery to change your heart so that you can love him. Even begin to have a love for God. And that's why in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will take out the heart of stone, the heart that refuses God, that doesn't love God. I'll take that heart out and put in a heart of flesh, warm, responsive to God. I'll put my spirit in you. So, friends, this passage in in attacking their uh, replacing the word of God with their own tradition gets even deeper to say, you know, the root of this is trying to establish their own righteousness against the blazing word of God. To set up a, a system by which they can please God and present themselves to God. We can do that with our Christian religion as well. So this shows how desperately we need forgiveness and change. Forgiveness and change. And that's what this table points us to that not only are we cleansed made as as we sang earlier all our blemishes all our sins are washed away through the death of Jesus. But the very fact that we're eating it and drinking it indicates that we're, we're being nourished to further and further change in our lives. And we need to constantly, constantly, helplessly acknowledge, apart from you, only evil will come out of us. I don't mean pure evil, but I'm just saying I will have nothing that's really pure, really that's centered on God's glory, really centered on the good of others with no evil motive. So this is actually amazing setting forth of the need for Jesus as Messiah. And and Mark, this is the longest section of such a disagreement that he has. And it's obvious this was very important for Mark to underscore The desperate need that we have of this one who knows our heart and instead of turning away from us, will, as this story unfolds, give himself. As he says in later in chapter 10, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And who are those many? This, the many whose hearts are just like that. Let us pray. Lord, how we thank you and praise you that you would love us. We thank you that you tell us honestly who we are, that though we do many good things, many noble things uh, that men and women have done throughout the years who don't know you yet, Lord, uh, we don't love you with a pure heart. We don't really want you, the true God. We really don't want to center our lives around the true God or honor the true God, no matter if even we're doing some good things in this world. And Lord, all of us know how many evil things have poured out of our hearts. Thank you that you rescue us. Thank you, Lord, that in your death, our sin is completely taken away. Thank you that you obeyed God where we couldn't. And we get the credit, we get the honor, we get the favor of your obedience. And thank you, Lord, that you see the depth of our sin and how it's stricken us and how we're enslaved by it and how we can do nothing of ourselves. And you rescue us. You begin to change us and you make us more and more like yourself throughout the whole of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you saw our condition and saved us and will save us in every way we need. We thank you for
0: the glory of God, amen. <clears throat>